It is the final day of February. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Later on our program, a conversation about legacies of bad medicine. We have a discussion about a University of Arkansas Honors College Symposium about the history of bad medicine. Before that, earlier this month, a bill was filed in the Arkansas Senate that could change what school board elections in the state look like. Matthew gets us started today with this report. Senate Bill 206 was filed February 6th by State Senator Clint Penzo of Springdale that would amend the law concerning school elections. One of the biggest changes to the law would be the added language that, quote, the position of district school board member shall be elected at a partisan election, end quote. Joe Hill is a school board member in Eureka Springs, and he says that in a town the size of Eureka Springs, this is very concerning. We have board members who own businesses, you know, different types of businesses, tourism and whatever. But if you have that D or that R by your name that, you know, theoretically, it could hurt your business. You know, you you might not get the business. Otherwise, you know, oh, so-and-so is a Democrat or he's a Republican. Joe has been a school board member for a little over six years in Eureka Springs, where he moved after retiring from, well, education. I just felt like I wanted to give back. You know, I have a different perspective, you know, for a school board member, perhaps. And so I just, uh, you know, I thought about it and finally ran. And now I've been on the board for six years. Tim Hudson is another school board member. He serves as the secretary of the Fayetteville Board of Education. And he says he's not in favor of turning school boards into political bodies. There's enough partisanship already, uh, if anyone's paying attention to uh, state and national politics. I have served for, this is my 19th year, and I'm I'm pretty certain I've served with Republicans, uh, Democrats, uh, independents, libertarians, probably some none of the above. And I cannot think of a time where anyone's party affiliation was an issue. For those who may not be terribly familiar with the process, what are some of the duties of a school board member? Um, that's, that's also a, a very good question. Um, there are certainly you know, statutory issues, the requirements that we have. One of the key requirements is that the, the board um, hire and supervise uh, the superintendent. That is the only employee that the board directly uh, engages with in that way. Obviously, financial oversight, fiscal management of the district's resources, and policies. Those are the three main kind of chunks of work that we engage in, uh, reviewing current policies, uh, considering changes or additions to the, the policies that um, govern the district's operations. What about on a curriculum basis? Does the school board have any say over what is and isn't involved in the school curriculum? There are a lot of things that school boards do at the kind of at the end of the process in terms of uh, approving hires, major purchases, uh, but we rely upon the uh, professional educators, uh, the employees of the district to do a lot of that work. That is that is their job. And so ultimately, yes, the school board does uh, approve uh, curriculum that's going to be aligned with the uh, state standards. But, um, you know, we're a group of seven individuals, not professional educators. And so we do rely upon our key administrative leaders and teachers to bring things forward. State Senator Clark Tucker, a partisan elected official himself, says making school board elections partisan races is very concerning to him. I believe that partisanship, not to be overdramatic, 
poses one of the greatest threats to our our state and our country. And it's what George Washington talked about in his farewell address after he was leaving the presidency is, you know, the, the threat that partisanship could pose to our democracy. And Benjamin Franklin said, you have a democracy if you can keep it. And our partisanship um, right now in America is at an unprecedented level. School board elections are actually one of the very few elections that are nonpartisan elections. What sort of statement do you think it makes that school board elections up to this point have been nonpartisan elections? It makes perfect sense for school board elections not to be partisan because the issues that school boards deal with are not partisan issues. They're largely administrative in nature. Another point of contention around SB 206 has been on the efforts to change the length of term a school board member serves. In the original version of the bill filed on February 6th, the language read, quote, All members of a school district board of directors shall be elected to a term of office of two years in length and shall not serve more than eight consecutive years in office, end quote. Currently, the law says terms should be, quote, not less than three years, nor more than five years. Both Tim in Fayetteville and Joe in Eureka Springs were very worried about the impact on a board with such a short-term length. Here's Joe. If they're all two-year terms, you know, you could wipe out a school board with one election. So that's, that's another reason that I feel it's important, you know, to keep it. Tim Hudson again. If you had a, a brand new group of folks or even a majority every two or four years, that's going to make the, the business of governance uh, a greater challenge. The most recent version of the bill has since adjusted the language around terms. The length of a term now proposed is four years, with a term limit of 16 consecutive years. The third element of SB 206 that has been most noticed is changing the date of school board elections. The bill would mandate that school board members, quote, shall be elected at the general election, end quote. For Tim, he says he understands the rationale for wanting to increase turnout. My concern is that doesn't necessarily increase turnout among people who are paying attention to school issues, whether it's, you know, a a single election on the ballot, as it was in September, uh, back when I first ran, putting it on the general election ballot in November uh, presidential year when you're going to have the highest turnout, all that really means for the school board race or, or school election issues is that we're way down ballot and drowned out by all the noise of larger races. When you combine the idea that it would be during a general election and it would also be a partisan race, are you concerned that folks who, you know, as you pointed out, may not be familiar with what's happening at the school board level would simply just vote down the ballot, you know, vote single party all the way down the ballot and not really take into consideration the work and efforts that have previously happened in school board uh, school board meetings? Certainly. I, I think what we've seen over the last few years in, in terms of just uh, state and, and national politics, people um, uh, defining themselves and their uh, their lives by a party affiliation, in my view, has not really improved public discourse. It has not particularly improved uh, the outcomes of, of legislative processes. And, you know, school boards are, they are a board. Uh, we are a, a board of education. We serve as the governing body of the school district. And as I said, we, we supervise the superintendent, a legislative body that has dozens or 
perhaps hundreds of people, uh, is a different animal uh, with, with different priorities. One of the things that really concerns me is about this particular bill is whether it's a two-year term, which it currently the bill calls for these to be two-year terms, or even four years. That means every two to four years, you could have a significant change. I think superintendents in the state are, are probably not particularly excited about potentially having new bosses, a whole new slate of bosses every couple of years. Uh, that certainly doesn't provide for consistent oversight and leadership. It means um, probably a loss of institutional knowledge uh, when you look at um, uh, the type of turnover that this would create. Joe says he personally doesn't find a big problem with changing the election to coincide with the general election. I think there'd be more people turning out to vote and it's, you know, than it would be for if it was just a special election or just a school board election. If this bill were to pass in its current iteration, candidates for school board would have to denote whether they are running as a Republican, Democrat, or Libertarian. Senator Tucker says the way a school board member would campaign would likely look different. My understanding is that, by and large, people who run for school board, they're visiting with teachers. They're going to school events. They're going to football and basketball games and and volleyball games and and other events that have only to do with the school community. Now, when you run for partisan office, you're going to a lot of community events as well. But just by nature of what you're doing, you have to go to a number of, of partisan events as well. It's just, unfortunately, the nature of the beast. And so if you're running for school board and it's a partisan race, all of a sudden you're going to a whole lot of partisan events too. In partisan elections for other offices, there is only one candidate per party on the general ballot. Whether or not school board elections will also have primary elections is unclear from my personal reading of the bill. I reached out to Senator Clint Pinzo, the sponsor of SB 206, to speak about the bill and for clarity around the topic of primary elections for school board, and he did not return my emails or voicemails. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Ahead this hour, the Rogers Short Film Festival is back with more submissions than ever. This has been much more of a challenge this year, yes. Uh, And, you know, currently... Uh, we have a we have a small group of helpers, and it's really great to have them. Uh, but you know, kind of being, uh, you know, being the director, I, it has been a big pile on my plate. But I'm very happy to have it. Uh, if anything, it's just giving us the capability to uh, continue our outreach. The film starts screening Friday, and we'll talk with organizers, a filmmaker, and a judge later on today's Ozarks at Large. On the next Resilient Black Women. Joy and Denisha start the new year talking about resolutions and giving yourself grace and understanding during this time when everything around us seems to slow down. Look to nature Mm. for when you think about when you should be putting lots of energy behind things. And he's like, nature is at rest. And I was like, I kind of like this. (laughs) I kind of like this idea of um, everything else is hibernating. Um, And here we are thinking, like, I need to do, 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 and get, get, get. Joy and Denisha also talk about resolutions for their nonprofit organization, Resilient Black Women, whose mission is to dismantle stigmas and increase access to mental health care for black women, women of color, and women everywhere. Recently recognized as one of the top six podcasts focusing on black wellness and health by Amaka Studio, you can listen for free at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Matthew. Yes. Did you know that if you have a car that you don't want, you can 
turn that unwanted car into support for KUAF? Before I worked at KUAF, I would have told you no. I did not know that. Well, we work with CARS, which stands for Charitable Adult Rides and Services, on car donations. Uh, They'll take care of the pickup. Mm -hmm. They'll take care of the auction and the distribution of the donation to KUAF. And they'll send a tax receipt to you if it's your car. I love that. Uh, All you got to do, make a call. 855-500-7433. That's... 855-500-RIDE. You can also go to careasy.org, and then you get going. I love that. Or the car gets going. That's right. (laughs) Yes. One in every five children in Arkansas has untreated tooth decay that can cause chronic pain and infections and issues with eating, speaking, and even learning. The Arkansas Department of Health reminds you that simple habits like toothbrushing, flossing, and visiting a dentist twice a year can support a lifetime of good health for our state's children. State lawmakers have passed a bill which would allow Arkansans to be prosecuted for using public restrooms inconsistent with their sex assigned at birth. Members of the Senate Judiciary voted along party lines yesterday to send SB 270 to the full Senate for a vote. Republican State Senator John Payton, the bill's sponsor, says it would only apply to adults who, quote, knowingly remain in a bathroom or changing room while a minor is present. If we're going to respect somebody's desire to go in the wrong facility, they need to respect the desire of other patrons to not be exposed to that and uh, just use that when it's not otherwise occupied by a minor. The committee's two Democrats took issue with a lack of clarity in the bill on how it would be enforced and how the bill's vague language could be interpreted to be broader than the sponsor's intent. Democratic Senator Clark Tucker said it's the latest in a series of bills sponsored by conservative Arkansas lawmakers, which doesn't address an actual problem in the state. First of all, there's no evidence whatsoever that this bill is needed. It wasn't cited. We would be the first state to pass a law like this. So Arkansas, if this bill passes, will take an unprecedented step toward criminalizing being transgender in America. Um, We also are consistently passing bills out of committees this session without giving them the the scrutiny that they deserve. And this is just the latest example. Under the bill, Arkansas... Under the bill, Arkansans found guilty of knowingly remaining in an opposite-sex bathroom while a minor is present would face misdemeanor charges for the first two offenses and a felony charge for the third offense. Tucker and Democratic Senator Stephanie Flowers were the only two committee members to vote against the bill's passage. Talk Business and Politics writes the four largest city in northwest Arkansas had a combined sales tax collection of just over $10 million in February reports. That's up nearly 9% compared to the same time last year. The February reports show tax revenue for goods and services sold in December. Bentonville had the highest monthly revenue gain, with the city collecting $2.4.82 million, up 22.17%. The U.S. Marshals Museum in Fort Smith is $800,000 closer to its goal of finishing interactive displays inside the museum. The museum has been named as a recipient of an $800,000 Division of Arkansas Heritage Cultural Institutions Trust Fund Award. Susan Naiman, the chief development officer and president of the U.S. Marshals Museum Foundation, says the $800,000 goes a long way to getting the museum to its final $5 million goal to finish those displays. We were very happy to be able to announce this news so, um, you know, others would see this great momentum going, particularly since this project has been going on for um, quite some time. 
The planning has been continuing for about 16 years since Fort Smith was selected as the site for the museum. Naaman says the finished displays will tell the entire story of the U.S. Marshals' history. Since it was created by George Washington um, through peak historical times in our country, through civil unrest, um, through the frontier period, you'll see all of these different periods throughout time and what the Marshal Service involvement was, all the way up to present day. As the final fundraising continues, Naaman says the museum is getting closer to announcing a grand opening date. She says that announcement could come the next week to 10 days. The National Cold War Museum in Blytheville is receiving a $400,000 grant from the Division of Arkansas Heritage Cultural Institutions Trust Fund. The museum's first stage is open now on the Eaker Air Force Base. The grant will help pay for exterior improvements of the Ready Alert facility at the base, which served as the U.S. Air Force Strategic Air Command during the Cold War. Dr. Kay Chandler of Little Rock is the next Arkansas Surgeon General. She was named yesterday by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Dr. Chandler has been an OBGYN at Cornerstone Clinic in Little Rock since 1997. She also currently serves on the board for the Pulaski County Medical Society and on the board of trustees of the Arkansas Medical Society. City of Fayetteville is again a Tree City, USA. It's the 28th consecutive year the city has been honored with the, des- the designation from the Arbor Day Foundation. Cities receive the Tree City, USA recognition by meeting or exceeding the program's requirements, having a tree board or department, a tree care ordinance, an annual community forestry budget of at least $2 per capita, and an Arbor Day observation and proclamation. There are 46 communities in Arkansas with that designation. Eureka Springs has 40 consecutive years as a Tree City, USA community. Foo Fighters are coming back to Northwest Arkansas. Live Nation announced this morning the band will play at Walmart Amp in Rogers on June 14th. Tickets for the show will go on sale to the public Friday through the usual Walton Art Center ticketing outlets. And the Arkansas Razorback men's basketball team is at number 12 Tennessee tonight for the last road game of the regular season. Tip-off set for just after 8 this evening. Razorback baseball team ranked ninth in the latest Baseball America poll. Razorbacks will host Illinois State tomorrow afternoon at 3. This is Ozarks at Large. You can find examples of bad medicine in the distant past, bloodletting leeches, for example. But also the recent past, the overprescription of opioids, for example. Next semester, Tricia Starks, a professor of history at the University of Arkansas, will lead an honors college symposium titled Bad Medicine. She's led the symposium before, and she's talked to us about bad medicine on previous shows, before and during the pandemic. We wanted to know if anything is different for this updated edition of the Bad Medicine Symposium. There's always something new and despicable to look at. But more than anything, the course has evolved for me in terms of what I want the students to get out of it as perhaps future practitioners, Mm -hmm. definitely as consumers of medicine. I want them to come out mindful of how medicine is a commodity, is culturally contingent, that it is made by people, 
and that they therefore can look at it critically. I'm from the humanities, I'm from history, and critical thinking is an essential skill that humanities teach us. And too often students have come to medicine without ever thinking about it critically. And that's what we do in this course. What's an example of thinking about medicine critically? Most students' experience with medicine is as a triumphalist endeavor, always moving forward, always getting better, stronger and stronger. And we have the evidence around us of this. We're living longer. The years that we have are better and more vital. Yet at the same time, those benefits are not equally shared across society. Socioeconomic differences make certain that not everyone has the same benefits of medicine. And if we even remove socioeconomic difference, we know that there are ethnic differences as well in provision and benefit from medicine. That's one aspect of that criticism that I want to get to them is to understand how our society and culture measure how much benefit of medicine is given to each person. The other thing, though, that has only really come to me in the last few years as I've been involved in the medical humanities program that Dr. Casey Kazar from English put together is how medical humanities can really help future practitioners be better doctors, be better providers. And that can come in two ways. By studying history of medicine, by studying the language of medicine as they do with Dr. Kaiser, students we've found in studies will go on to be more empathetic practitioners and also suffer less burnout. And so this medical humanities is great for these future medical practitioners. But what I want them to get from my class is also a feeling of comfort with failure. Mm. So often we talk about medicine as uh, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We, we have Jonas all of Salk. Yes, yes. We have these people that came before us that have done so much. And with that, there is so much more danger in failure. We don't learn about the failures in the triumphalist um, medical histories. And yet, if we don't learn about those failures, it makes it so much harder to try, to strive, to do something different because you're on the shoulders of giants. To fall from there is so much worse than to stumble in real life. And so if we give students that understanding of failure as being also a major part of medicine, I think it frees them to fail, because failure is the way that we move forward. Medicine, does that refer to aspirin, chemotherapy, (laughs) wellness, rehabilitation? (laughs) I mean, it's a big word. It is a big word. And we go back to Hippocrates for our understanding in the course. We look at the three factors of the art, as Hippocrates stated them, the physician, the patient, and the disease. But we, we focus much more in bad medicine on the patient in that original form 
because patient in its original translation means they who suffer. Mm. And we talk a lot about suffering in this course and how oftentimes the hubris of the physician or the inscrutable nature of the disease lead to greater suffering for the patient. The title is Bad Medicine, so obviously <laughs> we're going to be talking about bad medicine in the course. Do you have to make sure you pepper in some good things? <laughs> I mean, week after week of bad medicine would be... It, it, um, it's an amazingly fun class, a lot of humor in it, surprisingly. I tell the students, we laugh so that we do not cry, mm. that we have to have this kind of ability to, to soldier through this. Yet at the same time, there are books that I warn them they're going to have to put down for a while and walk around, that they're going to have to measure their encounters with this material because it is often so distressing. We talk about uh, eugenics Mm -hmm. and mass sterilization and, of course, euthanasia. We discuss uh, the horrors of diseases that were made fanciful so as to um, control people, hysteria being a great example of this in the 19th century. We discuss how medicine often enslaved rather than freed people and look in, in that case especially at enslavement and how medical doctors conceptualized the African-American body in ways to further the institution of slavery. These are difficult topics. These are distressing concepts, and they are often hard to make it through. But at the same time, the class has these amazing moments of enlightenment. Um, I remember I brought on for you last time a young woman who was a double major or triple major, she was probably a quadruple major, (laughs) um, who was in music and pre-med. And she uh, performed a song for our class that was based upon a horrific sterilization trial from the 1930s uh, that became this cause celeb and had this jaunty little tune included. And she performed it for the class. And it was just an amazing moment. And that's one of the things that's great about these signature seminars that I, I, I must give a shout out to the Honors College because one of the fantastic opportunities that they provide is to have these small discussion-based courses in these signature seminars that are very similar to the content students would get at a small liberal arts college but combine the resources that you can only have at a flagship state university like the U of A. And so students get the best of both worlds. They get world-class researchers, like they'll have Peter Unger and Teeth. They'll talk to him (laughs) in just a bit. And and they have world-class researchers that they wouldn't be able to get at the smaller schools, but this kind of intimate, um, rigorous discussion-based courses that are – the hallmark of the small liberal arts college. It's it's an amazing place that I don't know anywhere else that provides something like that. When you're talking about bad medicine, be it um, making necessary medicine uh, unaffordable for someone, be it uh, you know 
horrific experimentation. Uh, whatever the case, there's a legacy, right? Mm-hmm. There, there can be distrust. There can be generational bad health. Is that something that comes up in the class? I, that is something that comes up in the class and something that we've recently experienced, that distrust of the medical system can be a major stumbling block to public health, a major stumbling block to health for everyone from these legacies of fear and exploitation from the past. And it's, I remember reading during the the, um, first part of the um, pandemic, people astonished, astonished (laughs) that there were, there were so many people that were fearful of medicine and somebody, it was Twitter. So of course there were comments below it. And the first one was, Ask any social scientist or historian, and we would have told you that this is the case. And indeed, I think it's so important for our society to understand how what are things that we see as unqualified goods might be understood in different ways from different groups. You're going to have the preview lecture. Yes. It's in person now, right? It is, though I believe it also is also going to be, be available streamed. I believe that. Oh. Um, yeah. I believe, yeah. yeah. But for, the, for obvious reasons, for the past several semesters, the preview lectures have been virtual only. Mm-hmm. You can't think about moving from virtual to in person without thinking about medicine and health a little bit. Yes. The reason we're doing it. Yes. I, I have to say it has not been great as of – a Russian scholar and a public health scholar <laughs> to have all of my work coming right out into my life. I, I, I prefer it in the books where it belongs. Uh, but yes, it's hard not to think about these things. As, and yet at the same time, I think that, again, is a great point about taking this class right now is how immediate it feels to so many students. It's vital. It hits them they read things about anti-vaccination campaigns in the 19th century, and they are right there with it and understand it and see all of its kaleidoscopic problems uh, in a way that my students before had not. Thank Trisha Starks. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Tricia Starks is a professor of history at the University of Arkansas. She will lead the Honors College Symposium titled Bad Medicine next fall. She's also going to deliver a preview lecture about the symposium. That lecture will take place at 515 Monday evening in the Gearhart Hall Auditorium. That lecture open, free. It's free to the campus and community. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A group of Brinkley area churches created a school to provide a quality high school education to black students in the late 19th century. Blacks had only 10th grade level education available when the consolidated White River Baptist District Academy was founded in 1893, and within a year, 75 students were attending. Tuition was $6 a month, and students were instructed in English, Latin, math, the sciences, and Bible study, in addition to vocational classes. The academy drew students from as far away as Chicago, Atlanta, and St. Louis. Tuition was sometimes waived for needy students, and the Ladies' White Rose Club, an African-American women's club in Brinkley, would sometimes cover students' cost, while local black churches provided food, books, and supplies. As more public schools began offering 12th grade education during the 20th century, and many people moved north in search of opportunity, enrollment declined and the academy closed in 1950. 
To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is Ozarks at Large. The Rogers Short Film Festival returns Friday at Victory Theater in downtown Rogers. By Sunday evening, nearly 60 films will have been screened. Elizabeth McCurdy, founder and co-director of the festival, says after launching in August 2021 with one afternoon and 13 films, this year's three-day festival includes 58 movies. This has been much more of a challenge this year, yes. Uh, and, you know, currently uh, we, have a, we have a small group of helpers and it's really great to have them, uh, but, you know, kind of being... Uh, you know, being the director, I, it has been a big pile on my plate, but I'm very happy to have it. Uh, if anything, it's just giving us the capability to uh, continue our outreach. Um, and we're planning on putting together a board of directors this year in order to support that growth uh, and just kind of continue to build the staff here uh, and turn it into that year-long organization since we have been established as a 501c3. There are films in four categories, K-12 through students, post-secondary students, amateurs, and professionals. Awards will be given in each category from judges like Allison M. Gibson, who has screened movies in the amateur division for this year's festival. A writer and film producer based in Los Angeles, she says she was given a list of familiar criteria to use for judging. Cinematography, acting, editing. And you look at all of that, and it's, it's important because there may be one that has better cinematography or, or another one has better acting or sound design. Sound design is very complicated and very hard particularly for amateur filmmakers. So we go through and sort of look at those categories. And then, but also then beyond that, I want to look at what the total film says. Does it speak to me? Does whatever it's, you know, if maybe it's sound wasn't as good, but what told the best story? Um, and so that's sort of how I go about, you know, raising ones about the other. Founder Elizabeth McCurdy says the films are roughly about 65% Arkansas-based, but there are films and filmmakers coming in from New York, L.A., Texas, Pennsylvania, and Florida. And instead of films of similar type, like animation or documentary, competing against each other, movies are grouped by types of filmmakers, amateurs all in the same category, or students K-12 through all in the same group. Buffalo are regenerative by nature. They are a key to combating climate change, through an ancestral farming practice we now call regenerative agriculture. Regenerative the documentary agriculture. Regeneration of Land and Culture will be screened Sunday as part of the professional category. The film, from Bentonville-based filmmaker, coffee culturist, and small business owner Brooke Beerhouse, was shot in eastern Oklahoma in collaboration with the Quapaw Nation. Beerhouse has entered a film into the Rogers Festival all three years of its existence, and says festivals like this one can break down barriers for filmmakers, amateur and professional alike. It allows you to connect with different directors and producers and people locally because a big thing, just being a filmmaker in general, documentaries can kind of be their own beast, but especially in narratives, you need to have a local crew. And it's like all about who you are in contact with and like who might refer you to another job. It's such a tough industry, and I think sometimes when we get people flying in and they don't understand Arkansas or they don't understand, you know, the Midwest and the heartland and, like, how community is so important, they don't really get to understand what makes our stories unique. And I feel like Rogers Short Film Festival, from the very beginning, has been focused on making those lasting connections for filmmakers and people interested in filmmaking, and it just feels so 
authentic and true. Beerhouse says she returns to the Rogers Festival, not just because it's nearby, but because she says the spirit of organizers and participants is one of collaboration, not a quality every film festival exhibits. Walk in somewhere and people are just trying to tell you how great they are and they don't really care about your work and don't ask questions. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. And you leave feeling kind of like, oh, man, I wish I was more like professional or just better than I am. And it's an awful feeling to have. But at Rogers Short Film Festival, you go in there and in the filmmakers' lounge, it's like, oh, what's your film? Oh, man, I'll try to like go and see it. Or they say, hey, I watched, I watched your film yesterday. I loved this about it. What's your next project? Or, you know, even if you ask for some feedback, people will give it to you. But it's really cool to see us, like, lift each other up. And then you see people introducing other, um, you know, producers or filmmakers and just talking. And it's like the more more that we're transparent with things that we're working on and we don't gatekeep, there's enough opportunity. We'll all get better. And it's really cool that there are film festivals like this now where people just you know, want to inspire and meet and connect and continue building together. It's really cool. The 58 films this year clock in from as brief as one minute to as long as 40 minutes. Like last year's festival, there will be what organizers call brackets, collections of films shown back to back. Then there are 10 to 15 minute breaks between each bracket. Elizabeth McCurdy says she was surprised last year how many people at the festival wanted to see every single film and ended up running to and from the theater. She says there will be an even easier opportunity to take in every movie this year. That's something that we really wanted to keep the same this year. Uh, and so this year, in, with those brackets and those intermissions, we're also going to be adding about an hour, 15-minute lunch break in the middle of the day, uh, where VIP pass holders can go and have a catered lunch at the VIP lounge, and ticket holders can go to one of the restaurants in downtown Rogers, um, just to make sure that everybody is well-fueled and well-energized to go and see every single film in the festival if they wanted to. Allison M. Gibson, the writer and producer judging the amateur category, says filmmakers can now make sophisticated, impressive films for far less expense than when she started. And she says that's diversified and democratized filmmaking. My father had a 16-millimeter film camera when I was growing up, and when we shot that, it was considered, you know, it was like gold, be careful, because it cost money to shoot, cost money to develop. We didn't have anyone to edit it at the time. And now, you know, this generation, this people in their 20s, the digital generation, they've grown up with cameras. They've learned to shoot movies. Um, they, they are editing. They learn how to edit, add music, do all kinds of things. And these films are very sophisticated. There was some drone use, slow motion effects, a lot of action shots. Um, and it's incredible what they can do now. Um, I went to undergraduate school at University of Texas in the radio television film department and even got a master's degree there. And what they're doing right now in high school programs where the um, students have access to incredible um, cameras, editing facilities, post facilities, and they make more complex projects as students than I did coming out of graduate school years ago. There are ticket options for one-day passes, full three-day passes, and all-access VIP passes. Those include the ability to attend the welcome breakfast, the lunches, the VIP lounge, and specialty evening events, including the award ceremony. And for filmmakers like Brooke Beerhouse, there is the award of watching others see your film for the first time. Oh, my gosh. I It's one of those where 
I, I truly love it, but I also hate it in the <laughs> sense that I'm, I'm so aware of little, like if an audio glitches or if there's a pop or something or, um, the, I don't like the transition, how it looks on the big screen. And so I'm so critical and I'm watching because I'm anticipating the moments where I've kind of laced in humor or I'm hoping that the joke lands or people like get those little bits. And so you always, it's like a letdown if there's only a few chuckles, but luckily there's been the, the screenings that we've had of this film in particular, people have laughed at the correct time. They've awed at good times, you know, so, but you're always very aware of audience engagement. The third Rogers Short Film Festival is Friday through Sunday at the Victory Theater in downtown Fayetteville. You can find tickets and more information by looking for the Rogers Short Film Festival tabs at either ArkansasPublicTheater.org or at Eventbrite. And we'll have a longer interview with filmmaker Brooke Beerhouse on our weekend Ozarks at Large, Sunday morning at 9. This is Ozarks at Large. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season on Saturday, March 11th at Walton Arts Center. Performing music from Sona's debut album release featuring groundbreaking new music that blends acoustic and electric sounds, including works by Paul Haas, Trevor New, and more. After intermission, Sona musicians will raise the roof with the joyously beautiful Symphony No. 3 by Brahms. Tickets and information at sonamusic.org. On our Wednesday show tomorrow, Arkansans early this month began to cross the Missouri border to purchase legal recreational marijuana. Hi, welcome to Flora Farms. How can I help you today? Hi, um, I kind of want something for like an edible and maybe some flour. But transporting marijuana purchases back into Arkansas is illegal. Our report tomorrow on Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. through the KUAF app for iPhone or by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. Calling all aspiring musicians, NPR's biggest music competition is back. Wow! I'm Taylor. Welcome to my Tiny Desk concert. And thank you for having me at the Tiny Desk along with my buddy here, Stingy. This is um, an interesting setup here. NPR's Tiny Desk Contest is back for 2023. You could join a chorus of your favorite artist in playing the famous Office Studio. The contest is open to unsigned artists 18 and older. All you have to do is submit a video of yourself performing one song from behind a desk. Entries are open on February 7th through March 13th. For rules and guidelines, visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org This is Ozarks at Large. Holy Anvil Recording Company is a recording studio that has captured demos and albums for local bands for a few years now. But in the past few months, it has started producing a new video series highlighting music from some of those same local bands. Rafe Box, owner of Holy Anvil Recording Company, recently stopped by the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio to talk about the Anvil sessions. Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis started their conversation by asking about how the studio got its start. I used to play in a couple of different bands, uh, Bones of the Earth and Judas and Void. I don't know, we kind of, at one point, we were just like, it's getting to be about time to record, we got to figure out where to go, and I just thought, 
well, maybe I'll get some equipment and try it out myself and, and see how that goes. And that was probably five years ago or so, mm-hmm. something like that. And I just really liked it. It was it was awesome. So I, I bought more stuff and got a space and just kind of kept working at it. And I don't know, here I am today, I guess. So. What, what are some of the bands that you've had the fortune of working with? So Mudlong was one of the first ones, TV Preacher. Those were probably the first two, aside from my bands, mm-hmm. if I remember right, that were like kind of came in and trusted me to, to record them without really knowing exactly what it's going to be like. But yeah, I had a Mudlong TV Preacher. Uh, I just recently finished up on the Witch Sister album that came out a little while ago. The Chads came in, but I, it's not out yet. I'm still working on that, still mixing it. The Flims are in right now, and uh, we're still recording. But yeah, I've worked with a bunch of bands around here. Burned sure. Up Blood Dry has come in for a lot of demos. A lot of the bands, like, at Huntsville. Huntsville Road Studios. Yeah, 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 yeah. At Huntsville Road Studios, you know, it's kind of set up like a practice space area. Mm-hmm. So I have two rooms where the owner, Mike, he was nice enough to let me put a window in between two of the rooms and make it into like a live room control room situation. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of the bands that practice there, you know, it's pretty easy to come and just record with me because right. it's right down the hall. So so not only are you recording bands for demos, for albums, EPs, whatever, you're also undertaking, have undertaken a new project. Tell us about the Anvil sessions that you've got going on. I spent years and years watching KEXP videos and Audio Tree videos. There's other ones, you know, there's stuff like Our Vinyl and Small Pond Sessions and stuff like that. But those are really the kind of the main two that I think people would be familiar with. But it's just such a cool way to just like have a band in, record. I mean, for me, I just do one song for now, at least. But just like have a band come in, do uh, a few songs and then an interview. And then, you know, it's kind of it's good exposure for the band. And it's just a really fun way to have somebody in and get to meet the band and to get to know them and and just kind of spend a night with them to make something cool and special, I think. So with the Anvil Sessions, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of had this idea of just like, well, maybe I can model something after that and, you know, do a a smaller version of that, you know, where I've only got right now I'm only doing one song, although it would be pretty cool to be able to do more than one song, maybe maybe an interview at some point. That'd be pretty sweet, but... But it's just something fun. I don't know. It's just something fun to do and uh, have the band in and just kind of do a live take, let them go for it, and just see what happens. Get some video and just kind of capture something cool and fun, I think. So what's your process like for putting these together? Well, so usually uh, I try and do like weekdays uh, after my day job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But just at least for now, just trying to find little bits of time whenever I can get it. And it it usually takes like – maybe three hours or so as far as like the recording process. But yeah, the band will come in and we'll, they'll just kind of, I'll tell them to set up exactly like they would for a show. I mean, I'll kind of like delegate where things are like, mm-hmm. all right, well, you don't want speaker cabinets pointed directly at the drums. You know, vocal right. mic has to be pointed away from the drums, that kind of thing. It's mostly just things avoiding the drum set because yeah. that's the loudest part. <laughs> Once we get it all set up, then I get the mic set up check levels just like you would at a show. And uh, once everything sounds good, then I set up the cameras and we just let them roll. And then you edit everything yourself. Yeah, yeah. So after it's all captured and good to go, then I'll take the time to go ahead and mix it, get it sounding good, the audio. And then after that, I'll get the video in, just kind of get it to look all right. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Just doing my best with it. Right, right. So who are some of the bands that you featured on the Anvil Sessions? Um, Okay, well, TV Preacher was first. I just, uh, I love those guys. (laughs) They're just really great people. And like, it was just, 
they were cool enough to let me experiment with them, I think. So that was really kind of how I phrased it, too, is I, I, I reached out to them and I was just like, I've got this idea. Do you guys want to try something out? And they were just like, yeah, sure. It's like, okay, cool. So, and then it was the Salesman, Protohive, then the Flims, then Lost Cause, Fight Dream, John Charles and the Cold Cuts, the Chads, and then now Sad Palomino. And then uh, Ashton Barbary and the Barbarians is next. That right. one's not released. And I bet the Sad Palomino session will be out by the time this interviews out. So You are actually going to partner with us here at KUAF am, on these yeah. sessions moving forward. Tell us a little bit how that's going to work. I'm super excited about it and it's just awesome. But basically it seems like you guys will be kind of partnering up with me to help get the word out on it and to help grow Anvil Sessions and I don't know, just make it as as good and as uh, broadly reaching as it can be. So other than partnering on this endeavor, what, what are your hopes or your aims for the future future of this, of the, of the Anvil sessions? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I kind of modeled it after KEXP. So that's really why I reached out to KUAF as well, Mm -hmm. being NPR affiliates. I guess my main goal would be to just kind of grow it in this area as much as I can Mm -hmm. until eventually regional bands are coming in, until eventually national bands are coming in, Mm -hmm. national artists. uh, And uh, I'd, I'd really like to make it something that I think would be kind of like an archive of Northwest Arkansas music and then eventually regional music and then mm-hmm. whatever comes next. But for right now, yeah, it's uh, it'd be really cool just to feature as many bands as I can, as many artists as I can, and, t- and kind of grow it into something that maybe uh, people can look back on and kind of reflect on the times with it, I think. Where can people find out more information? Where can they watch episodes that have already been completed? Uh, what, what, where, where can people go? First off, my YouTube channel. That's really where all the sessions live. And that's just Holy Anvil Recording Co. on YouTube. I think that's the handle as well, just at Holy Anvil Recording Co. So that's where they air first. I'm also talking with FPTV, and they're going to also air those shows. I don't know exactly what time, but it'll be alongside Fayette Tunes, mm-hmm. I believe. So I'm not, I'm not sure what days and what time that is yet. And I don't think that'll start happening until maybe a couple weeks from now. But you can see them there. You can go to the KUAF website. I have my own little section there. And that links to the newest video, I believe, and probably also to my channel, if I remember right. So you can check them out there. If you are an artist or a band that's trying to get onto the Anvil Sessions, you can go to my page on the KUAF site, and there is a submission form there to put in. And that's something that I'll be able to look at and uh, kind of see who all is put in and then uh, hopefully get you on a session pretty soon. Well, Rafe, thank you so much for stopping by today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That was Rafe Box speaking with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis. You can find a section for the Anvil Sessions under the Music Menu at KUAF.com. And while you're there, you can watch the latest edition of the Anvil Sessions featuring the local band San Palomino. You can also find out more about Rafe and Holy Anvil Recording Company on Facebook at HolyAnvilRecordingCO.com. Classical music on KUAF is always available to you on KUAF, too a digital, all-classical music station. Classical music can be heard on 91.3 FM Sunday through Thursday overnight, beginning at 8 p.m. Listen with your radio, your smart speaker, or with the KUAF app for iPhone. And the first hour of classical music tonight on 91.3 with Peter Vandergraaff includes Rimsky-Korsakoff's arrangements, including his addition to Mussorgsky's Night on Bald Mountain. That's the first hour of classical music tonight on KUAF, following the end 
of Ozarks at Large. I'm glad you read that and not me. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and the White River. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Timothy Dennis and Mark Christ. Additional material today came from the new staff at KUAR in Little Rock. Did you know that Night on Bald Mountain was also known as Night on Bear Mountain, B-A-R-E? I did not. That leads me to an update uh, from something from Friday when Courtney Lanning and I talked about the new film Cocaine Bear. Sure. I, Excellent segue. Yeah, thank you. I received a press release this morning that Ripley's, believe it or not, uh-huh. is in negotiations to buy the real stuffed cocaine bear. Uh, I would, I mean, of course they yes. are. <laughs> uh, apparently, the people who own it now are in mm-hmm. Kentucky, and um, they are asking somewhere north of $300,000 for this stuffed bear. That feels low. Oh, I was about to say that seems high. No, are you kidding me? They just made a whole movie okay. off of yeah. this. And the movie will be, you know, out of sight, out of mind in about like, three like, months. Yeah, like so then you're gonna have Sharknado it, kind of vibes. Although it's doing relatively well, so maybe there's cocaine bear too, and you get your money out of it. Yeah. Anyway, I told myself when I got that press release, if there's enough time at the end of the show, I will share with people that Ripley's, believe it or not, wants to buy the real cocaine bear. So the asking price is 300000 According to this press release. But apparently Ripley's Believe It or Not is not the only possible suitor now. Ah. It's at a place called the Kentucky for Kentucky Fun Museum in Lexington, Kentucky. So much that I don't know about this story. <laughs> it's amazing. And I have not seen the movie because it's apparently bloody and gory. If you'd like to buy this... No, I'm no, just kidding. No. <laughs> so that's our update on Cocaine Bear. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, We will be back with you tomorrow. We told you that we're going to have the story about marijuana legal uh, legalization in Missouri. Missouri, That's right. But also uh, the latest excerpt from Undisciplined Podcast. That's right. Yep. We'll have the full conversation in the podcast feed soon. And you can hear an excerpt of it on tomorrow's show at noon and at 7. Matthew produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. From that studio, I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Be well.